Well, if you have a Bible, if you would open it to Exodus chapter 11. This morning we're going to work our way through Exodus 11, starting in verse 1 and going through verse 16 of uh, Exodus chapter 13. So that's a lot of ground to cover. We won't uh, be able to read everything uh, in this passage, but I think you'll be helped by having a Bible open. I'll try to reference and point you to the different places in the text where we're drawing out these ideas. And so uh, I'd encourage you to uh, open a Bible or open a Bible app on your phone. So as we, uh, as we come to this sort of pivotal moment in the book of Exodus, the, the tenth and the final plague that secures Israel's freedom from slavery in Egypt, I, I want to just take a minute and get everyone caught up. So in case you're not familiar with the story up to this point, let me just take a moment to, to set the stage. Ba- back in the book of Genesis, God called out a man named Abram. Later his name would be changed to Abraham. God called Abram along with his family and, and promised to make him into a great nation. He promised to give Abram and his descendants a homeland. And he promised to bless the entire world through this nation. So in Genesis chapter 15, we, we read this uh, prediction by the Lord. It says there in verse 13 of Genesis 15, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. So the Lord makes these extraordinary promises to Abraham, but he also says, your descendants are actually going to be enslaved in a land, and I'm going to deliver them from that slavery. Fast forward through the centuries, the book of Exodus opens with Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel, being oppressed in the land of Egypt. They are toiling as slaves under Pharaoh, building cities for him. Uh, But God's promise to Abraham has to stand. And so the Lord raises up a man named Moses to lead Israel out of slavery and into the land that God had promised them. In Exodus chapter 3, we read that God told Moses exactly what would happen He said, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. I want you to demand the release of the the Hebrew slaves, the people of Israel. And, And here's what's going to happen. God tells Moses in Exodus 3, verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people, that is the Israelites, favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. So in response, Moses and his brother Aaron go to Pharaoh. They demand that the Israelites be released. He, as the Lord predicted, refuses He actually makes life harder on the Israelite slaves. He says, now you have to gather the straw to make your own bricks. He's trying to break their spirit to convince them that, in fact, their God cannot and will not save them. And in chapter 6, the Lord gives Moses instructions about what to say to the people of Israel. I think this is really important for understanding our passage for this morning. We read in Exodus 6, starting in verse 6. The Lord says to Moses, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. 
and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I think that statement there, what God says to Moses, to basically what God tells the Israelites through Moses in Exodus chapter 6, is something of a mission statement for this section of the book of Exodus. It's exactly what we're going to see happening in our passage for this morning. The Lord promises Israel two things. He says he will deliver them from slavery. He says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. We've seen those great acts of judgment unfolding over the past two Sundays as the Lord has unleashed nine terrible plagues on the Egyptians. But as the Lord told Moses back in chapter 3, it was going to take more than that to make Pharaoh relent. The Lord says he was going to have to compel him with a mighty hand. And brothers and sisters, that's exactly what we're going to see happening this morning. The Lord promises to take Uh, to redeem Israel from slavery in Egypt. The second thing he promises there in chapter 6 is that he will take Israel as his people, that that he will be their God. He he tells Moses there in chapter 6 his purpose is for Israel to know that he is the Lord their God, that he is the one who's brought them out of slavery. And so those promises, I think, form the framework through which we want to examine chapters 11 and 12 in the beginning of chapter 13 this morning. And so what I'd like to see is those two promises, and then I want to add one third thing on at the end as we conclude. So so three things for us to see this morning. Uh, First, let's look at the redemption in our passage. Second, let's look at our passage and see the replacement. And then finally, we'll conclude by thinking briefly about remembrance. So redemption, replacement, and remembrance. So first, let's look at, at these verses and see redemption. Uh, the Lord promises there in chapter 6 to redeem his people. He's using a term that would have been familiar to them. To redeem someone is to secure their freedom from captivity. Here, the Lord is going to do exactly that for Israel. The way he will accomplish it, he says, is uh, with an outstretched arm. Right? He will bring his people out of slavery through powerful acts against Egypt. In chapter 11, we see Moses explaining this to Pharaoh, right before he storms sort of indignantly out of Pharaoh's presence for the last time. Uh, It says there in chapter 11, starting in verse 4, So Moses said, so he's speaking to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he, that is Moses, went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So here Moses announces this final plague that will visit the land of Egypt, 
And it's a bit different from the other nine plagues that have preceded it. We saw last week that the, the first nine plagues seem to have a, a sort of literary cohesion. They kind of group together in, in uh, triads. The first three plagues go together. Uh, the second three plagues go together. We saw last week the final three plagues go together. And it seems that we're supposed to understand that those nine plagues kind of, kind of form a unit. And this tenth plague is something really different This plague will not be brought about through any action of Moses or Aaron. Uh, In the other plagues, the Lord tells Moses, go, stretch out your staff, strike the water, right? Throw dirt up in the air, do something, and then I will send the plague. But, But now Moses has nothing to do. He doesn't have to stretch out his staff. He doesn't have to throw anything in the air. Instead, the Lord says that he himself will go out in the midst of Egypt, Right, this final decisive act will not be something sent by God against Egypt. Rather, it will be the result of the Lord being present in the land. That's exactly what we see happen. The, the terrible plague that's predicted in chapter 11, it comes to pass at the end of chapter 12. So we read there, if you look at verse 29 of, of chapter 12, at midnight. The Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. Listen, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up. Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The story is incredibly dramatic. The Lord strikes down the firstborn of Egypt, from the highest to the lowest, among both man and beast. You can imagine the horror as the Egyptians woke up in the middle of the night, perhaps something even in their sleep alerted them to the fact that something was going terribly wrong. So you wake up in the middle of the night only to find that disaster has befallen them. Pharaoh, if you remember, had tried to kill the Israelite children back in chapter 1. Throughout the book of Exodus, the, the Pharaoh sets himself up against Israel, right, that that group of people that the Lord had declared to be my son. So here it's only fitting that the final act of judgment is God coming against Pharaoh's son. There in verses 31 to 32 of chapter 12, the Lord's word is fulfilled. Pharaoh does what he had promised he would not do, but what the Lord said he would do. He actually drives the people of Israel out of the land. He doesn't just let them go, but he forces them to go. Right there in verse 33, we see the feeling was universal. The Egyptian people themselves send the people of Israel out urgently, worried that if the Israelites stayed, they might all be killed. There in verse 37, there is this rather matter-of-fact conclusion to the matter. It says, the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Friends, just like that. Israel's slavery is over. They're free. Uh, There is plenty of difficulty in front of them, but they will never again be slaves in Egypt. The Lord redeemed them with a mighty hand. 
Now we should take a minute to see what this Exodus event, this deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt, we should stop to see what it shows us about how God saves his people. Because what becomes clear as the Old Testament progresses along is that this Exodus event, this deliverance of God's people from slavery, this redemption, is actually a picture of how God saves. When the Old Testament wants to talk about salvation, when the Old Testament wants to talk about redemption, it looks back to this event. So when God wants to identify himself to the people of Israel. He doesn't say, I am the Lord who made the earth and everything in it. So that would be a perfectly legitimate way for him to identify himself. Instead, he says things like this, I am the Lord your God. Which, which God was that? Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's who he is. That's how he relates to his people. Uh, several centuries later, the, the King David would pray to the Lord. Listen to how David understood God. He says, who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. You see, Israel, that nation, they are the people redeemed by God for himself from Egypt. That's who they were. That's who God is. Even 500 years after King David, the Lord spoke through the prophet Micah, and he says this to the people of Israel. He says, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. This is almost a thousand years after the event, and the Lord is still pointing back to that, saying, this is who I am. I'm the one who did this for you. The redemption of Israel from slavery in Egypt serves as the paradigm. It serves as the prime example of God's salvation in the Old Testament. One scholar identified 109 separate references to, to this event, to this chapter alone in the rest of the Old Testament. And look what we see about God and about his salvation just from what we see here. We see in the Exodus that it is God alone who saves. He's the one who accomplishes his people's salvation. Right? He visits the land of Egypt personally. He takes the life of the firstborn. Right? The people of Israel don't do anything to make this happen. They simply sit by as the Lord accomplishes it. We also see that God's salvation is his triumph over the enemies of his people. We've seen as we've been going through these plagues that this is actually God establishing and declaring victory over Pharaoh and over the so-called gods of Egypt. We see that God's salvation results in the liberation of his people. Right Before... They're enslaved. Afterwards, they're free. And brothers and sisters, what we see when we get to the New Testament is that God actually has a greater redemption. He actually has a greater deliverance in store for his people. One maybe surprising place that we see this in the New Testament is in Luke chapter 9. Of all places, at Jesus' transfiguration. 
This is, if you're familiar with Luke's gospel, this is a, a pivotal moment in Jesus' earthly ministry. At the end of chapter 9, Luke is going to tell us that Jesus uh, has set his face to go to Jerusalem. Right? He's, he's turned now to go to die on the cross. But right before that, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is on a mountain with a few of his disciples. And suddenly, they see that he's been transfigured. His clothes become shining and bright white. His, his appearance becomes suddenly glorious. Listen to what Luke tells us about what happens next. It says, Behold, two men were talking with him, that is Jesus. Two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So here's the thing, that word that's translated in our versions as departure, the Greek word that Luke uses there is exodus. Right, Luke is showing us that Jesus, turning his face now to Jerusalem, preparing for his upcoming crucifixion, prepares for it by talking to Moses about the exodus that he's about to perform. You see, in Jesus, God is about to save his people. As Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem to die, God is preparing to save his people, just as he did in the exodus God is going to save his people, to redeem them from slavery, to sin and death with a mighty arm, just as he delivered Israel. But this time, he's going to save his people, not through the death of Pharaoh's son, but God saves us through the death of his own son. Jesus accomplished another greater exodus by offering his own life up on the cross. He redeemed us from slavery to sin by dying for us. And so that's the first thing for us to see in this passage, God's redemption. God redeems Israel from slavery in Egypt through the devastation of this 10th plague. Now remember what we saw back in Exodus 6. The Lord promises Israel two things, freedom from slavery, redemption, and he also promises them that he would be their God, that he was going to take them for his people. We saw that first thing, the redemption is accomplished through the 10th plague. The second thing will be accomplished through the Passover. And that brings us then to the second thing for us to see this morning, the replacement. We've seen the redemption, now the replacement. Look there in chapter 12. I want to read a chunk of chapter 12 to you, beginning in verse 3. Here the Lord says to Moses, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each of you can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without a blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintels of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. 
In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this event is known as the Passover. It's the explanation for how it is that Israel was spared the terrible consequences of the tenth plague. You see there in verse 12 of chapter 12, Yahweh, the Lord, is coming to Egypt. He is coming as sovereign Lord and judge. He is coming to execute judgment on man, beast, and God. And here's the thing you have to understand if any of this is going to make sense. When God shows up in judgment, the Israelites no longer need protection from Pharaoh. The Israelites need protection from God. Human beings cannot stand unsheltered and unprotected in the presence of the judge of the world, right? Any more than you could imagine walking on the sun, right? See, this is important. What you need to be saved from is not a what at all. It's a who. You need to be saved from God's holy and righteous judgment. And so here, as God comes personally into the land of Egypt to execute judgment, He makes a way for his people to survive, for his people to endure his presence. Even more than that, to experience his presence as salvation and deliverance. And that way that God made is through the blood of a sacrifice. You see that there in verse 13 of chapter 12. When I see the blood, God says, I will pass over you. Let me, for the sake of time, just try to briefly point out five things that we see in this passage that are important about this Passover sacrifice. First, the blood here signifies that God's justice has been satisfied. Notice that the Passover really has nothing to do with God's favor or love. The Israelites actually already had that. He had already spared them from several of the plagues without any kind of sacrifice or any marker like this. So don't get confused and think that God really needed some kind of clear signal to know who he was supposed to kill and who he wasn't. Right? He didn't need them to paint the doors of their houses with blood so that he knew which ones had Hebrew people in it. No, he was quite capable of making that distinction without their help. Right? The blood on the doorway had to have some other meaning. It wasn't just a sign, hey, Hebrew family, don't kill. No, we see there again in verse 13, when I see the blood, I will pass over. Right? The blood, he says, the Lord says, is a sign. It showed that a death had already occurred. It showed that a price had already been paid, that that. Judgment had already been executed within the walls of that house, and so no further judgment was needed. The second thing to notice is that the blood provides complete protection. Can you imagine what it would be like 
to be an Israelite on that night, knowing that the Lord would be present in your midst, taking life in judgment. Well, notice how the Israelites spend the Passover inside their homes, sheltered behind the blood of a sacrifice. And what are they doing? They're feasting, actually. They're, they've actually, the Lord tells them, look, I want, you to, I want you to dress like you're getting ready to go on a road trip. I want you to act as if you're already free. Right? They're not terrified at all because they're safe. Look there in verses 22 to 23 of chapter 12. Moses tells the elders of Israel this. He says, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. The Lord is saying your safety is complete when you are covered by the blood of the sacrifice. No destroyer will be allowed to enter a home covered in the blood. No harm can come to you. There's no need to worry in the slightest. Third thing to notice. Notice that Israel grabbed hold of this blood protection by faith. They didn't have to do anything to earn God's favor. Right, this was not an offer of protection for the holiest Israelites. This was not an offer of shelter for the best of the best. No, this protection was available to anyone who would hear what God said and believe it and take shelter under the blood. Right, the Lord had shown in dramatic ways, nine separate times, that he is trustworthy and truthful. He said he was sending a plague, and he sent a plague over and over again. There were a lot of reasons to conclude that, that the Lord is telling the Israelites exactly what's about to happen. And so here he promises them one last plague, and he offers shelter to anyone who will believe him and respond accordingly, who will put their trust in his appointed means for deliverance. Right? There's no negotiations. There's no alternative offers. There's no, yeah, God, I hear you, but let me just spitball a few other options for, for passing me over. No, God says you're going to do it this way and this way alone. Every Israelite who responded in faith was saved from destruction. Fourth thing, notice that the sacrifice had to be perfect. There in chapter 12, verse 5, the Lord reminds the people that the sacrifice they make must be without blemish. You can imagine a temptation on part of the Israelites commanded now to sacrifice one of their animals. You can imagine they might well have been tempted to grab the one that was, that was sickly, that was scrawny, that was diseased in some way, one that maybe didn't have too much longer on the clock anyway. Let's put that one to death. But that is beneath the dignity and the purity of the Lord. And more important, it seems that there's meant to be a symbolic value here. Something has to die that wasn't about to die on its own. Something has to die, not for something wrong with it, but because something's wrong with you. Right? This has to be something that doesn't deserve to die. Something pure, something good, something that represents life in and of itself. 
And that brings us to the fifth thing to notice, that the lamb appointed by the Lord is to be a substitute, a replacement for the people of Israel themselves. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 30, remember what we read there. Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. You see, there's someone dead in every house in Egypt, from the greatest to the least. There is a corpse, there is a body in every house in Egypt. Either it's the body of the oldest son, or it's the body of a lamb slain in that child's place. When the Lord saves his people, he does it by accepting a substitute in their place. A perfect, spotless sacrifice that will take the death that they deserve. And friends, just like the exodus from Egypt, the the Passover event will echo through the rest of the Bible. Here in the Passover, the people are spared when their death is transferred to a spotless lamb. The Lord would come in judgment to the house of an Israelite, and he would see that the price of death, the price of blood, had already been paid for that house. The death that that all sinners experience in the presence of a holy God, it was already executed, and so there was no need for greater judgment. That's the way sacrifice worked in the Old Testament. It it represented that the price of sin, the, the wage of sin, namely death, had been paid. All through the Old Testament, we see this theme of a substitute sacrifice being played out. This idea that that God's people could be replaced, as it were, under the judgment of God by by a substitute. As we trace this idea through the Old Testament, what we see is that it starts out very small and very narrow and, and gradually widens. So if you go back to the book of Genesis, you see this idea of a replacement or a substitute in the story of Abraham and Isaac. God demands the life of Isaac, Abraham's son. But instead of having Abraham kill him, the Lord provides a ram to take the boy's place. Right, there's a one-to-one correspondence. The ram dies, Isaac lives. Here in the Passover, we see the scope widening just a bit. We have a sacrificial lamb standing in now, not just for one person, but, but actually protecting an entire household from destruction. A bit later in the Old Testament, when the people of Israel enter into the land that God had promised to give them, the Lord gives them instructions for celebrating a day of atonement each year. And on that day, a priest would take his hands and he would symbolically transfer the sins of the people of Egypt to an animal, or the people of Israel to an animal. Right? And you see that the scope is, is even widening more. It's no longer just one person being saved by this sacrifice. It's no longer one household being saved by this sacrifice. It's an entire nation being replaced by this sacrifice. And then finally, as God's redemptive story reaches its climax, we see the end to which the Passover lamb was pointing. Because the plan all along was for God to send his own son as a sacrifice, as a substitute, as a replacement, not for one person, not for a family, not even for a nation. But the New Testament tells us Jesus died for the sins of the entire world. 
Jesus died in the place of people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. He died for anyone, anywhere, who would ever put their faith in the sheltering power of his blood shed for them. Right, the picture of Jesus as the, the culmination of the Passover sacrifice. It's so clear, it's so obvious, the authors of the, of the New Testament can't help but make the connection. So in John's Gospel, when John the Baptist sees Jesus for the first time, he, he keeps shouting, he's anno- he annoys everyone, right? He, he goes, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Everyone there would have understood exactly what he was talking about. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when the Apostle Paul wants to call the church to holiness, he reminds them, he says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The Apostle Peter reminds the church in his first letter that they haven't been saved. They haven't been redeemed by by things like silver or gold, he says, but you've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, the point of the the Passover sacrifice in Exodus 12, it was meant to give the people of Israel a category. It was meant to give them uh, sort of hooks to hang God's ultimate salvation on so that they could understand it, so that they would begin to understand that the Lord, in his kindness, in his love, would be willing to accept a pure and blameless sacrifice in their place. That there could be a substitute, that there could be a replacement Those categories, introduced so clearly in the Passover, are fulfilled and given their final meaning in the death of Christ. So, brothers and sisters, now there is no need for any further sacrifices. I just think about it. All of the sacrifices offered over all of the years of the Old Testament, right? All of those lambs slaughtered. We know from 2 Chronicles 35 that during just one Passover celebration, 37,000 lambs were slaughtered. All of that death, all of that sacrifice, it's finished. God looks on Jesus dying on the cross as a substitute for his people, as their replacement, and now it's over. Jesus himself declared on the cross, it is over finished. There's there's no other sacrifice that needs to be offered. Christian, I'm struck by the fact that the the point here is not that simply you would hear it. Not even that you would understand it. The point of this is not even that you would agree that it's true, though I hope all those things are the case. Instead, the, the point is that this reality that God loves you so much that he sent his own son to be a substitute for you, to to take the the wrath, the judgment that you deserve. The, The idea is that that reality ought to so shape your life that it becomes the foundation for your identity. It becomes the lenses through which you see everyone and everything. You see, the deliverance of the nation of Israel through the blood of a substitute it was meant to shape how they saw themselves. Right? They would look at their firstborn, spared from judgment, and they would know, they would be reminded that they were a people that God had redeemed for himself, that they were a people that God had brought into relationship 
with himself. And brothers and sisters, so it is for us. This reality that God has saved us, that he has freed us, not through something cheap and provisional like a lamb, but through the blood of his own precious son, slain for us, raised from the dead for us, that reality becomes the lenses through which we see the world. That reality is the truth that controls the way we think about ourselves and about other people. Right? God, he no longer comes to Sterling Park Baptist Church and says, I am the Lord your God, I delivered you out of slavery in Egypt. That's no longer how God identifies himself. That's no longer how God addresses his people because that's not the greatest salvation God has ever accomplished. Now God comes to us and he says, I'm your heavenly father. I'm the one who loved you enough to not even withhold my own son from you, but to freely give him up. That's who God is in relationship to us. That's who we are. The great 19th century pastor Charles Spurgeon once said this. He said, for the Israelite, all his acts were to be under the influence of the atoning blood of Passover. Oh, what service you and I would render if it was always redeemed labor that we gave. If we went to our Sunday school class, for instance, feeling, I am bought with a price. And if we preached with redeemed lips the gospel of our own salvation, how livingly and lovingly we would speak. What an effect this would have on our lives. You would not dare, some of you, to do what you do now if you remembered that Jesus died for you. Many a thing you've left undone would be at once minded if you had a clearer consciousness of redeeming love. Christian, remember that you've been redeemed through replacement. You've been saved by the death of a substitute, the precious Lamb of God. You are blameless in the sight of your God because he loved you and sent his son to die for you. The people sitting next to you, they've been redeemed by that same blood. They are every bit as right before God as you are because of Christ. Now maybe you think, okay, I understand that, but it's hard. Right? Other things have a way of crowding out that reality. Sickness, financial concerns, busyness at work, worries about the people you love. Those things have a way of feeling more real and more present and more immediate than the love of God shown to you in the death of Christ. Our sin can be so discouraging that it's easy to begin to think it's the most important thing about me. Right? Difficult relationships, conflict, even painful members' meetings. Those things can be like a mountain right in the center of our vision, so it's suddenly the only thing we can see. It makes it difficult to see our brothers and sisters in light of Christ's redemption. But I've got news for you. It wasn't easy for the Israelites either. They kind of had a lot going on. They were pretty busy for the next couple of centuries. And so the Lord, in his kindness, doesn't just redeem them by giving them a replacement, but he also gives them a way to remember, to keep this salvation before their eyes. And so that brings us to our final thing to see this morning, the remembrance. Right, if you look back at the first couple of verses of chapter 12, you see the Lord gives the Israelites instructions on how to move forward in light of what was about to happen. Up until this point, the Israelites were marking their new year like any other ancient Near Eastern nation. 
right? The, the beginning of the calendar was, the, was harvest time. But here at the beginning of chapter 12, the Lord redoes all of that. He says there in verse 2 of chapter 12, this is now the beginning of your calendar year. There's a new beginning. Everything actually starts now when I've redeemed you. Right, if you think about it, there are few things more fundamental to a society than its calendar. Right, think how much of the rhythm of your life is built around passing and keeping the months and the years in a certain rhythm. And so we see here the Lord is redoing that, literally reordering the calendar around his work of redemption. Now the Israelites' life will bear testimony to the Lord's work. Right? Why is this the beginning of our year? Like, why do, we, why do we start now? Oh, well, I'm glad you asked. This is the time of year we actually began, when the Lord's redemption was accomplished, when he made us into his people, when he freed us from slavery in Egypt. Every time the new year would roll around, it was a reminder of the Lord's wonderful work of redemption. It's interesting, it's not actually the only time in the Bible we see God rearranging the calendar in order to reflect his work of redemption. We also see when we get to the New Testament and the, the early church that because Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week, the church actually began to gather on that day as well. The church began to celebrate that event weekly on Sundays. Just as the Israelites would celebrate the Passover in this feast that the Lord ordained for them, so we as Christians gather each week as we're doing right now to celebrate the great work that Christ has done on our behalf. Right? Christ's redemption and his lordship over us, it permeates even our weekly calendar. Right? The, the wondrous reality of the resurrection is present even in the mundane details of our schedule. It's like a, a giant memorial that we see every seven days. Right? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, resurrection day. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Resurrection Day, right? Rinse, lather, repeat until we're in glory. We have Memorial Day every week. We have Easter every Sunday. It's the Lord's gift to us to help us remember, knowing that we have a tendency to forget, knowing that it's easier for us to make other things the, the sort of most important thing. And so God has hardwired into the rhythm of our lives that every seven days we're going to come back. We're not even going to wait a year like Israel would between Passovers, right, between New Year's celebrations. Every seven days, we're going to come back and we're going to remember together that the Lord has redeemed us through a substitute. But this isn't the only indication of the importance of remembrance in this passage. It's really only just the beginning. The whole Passover celebration that's detailed for the Israelites is designed to help them commemorate and to remember this saving event so we don't have time to look at everything that this passage tells us about how the Israelites were meant to, to celebrate the Passover. But you see in chapter 12, verse 14, uh, he says, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout all generations. In verse 17, they're given instructions for observing the feast of unleavened bread. We're told Israel left Egypt and didn't even have time for their bread to rise. Right? And so they were going to celebrate throughout the years this feast of unleavened bread to remember their flight from Egypt. There in verses 24 to 27, in the same way, we see instructions for, for keeping this statute and explaining it to your children. In chapter 13, you have this instructions for the feast of unleavened bread. 
right, where they would be reminded of their flight from Egypt. So we read there uh, in verses 7 to 10 of chapter 13. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statue at its appointed time from year to year. There are a lot of details about the Passover celebration and the Feast of Unleavened Bread that might be interesting and instructive, but, but the only thing I, we, I want to notice for our purposes this morning is that the Lord saved them and then gave them a perpetual reminder of what he had done. Right? The Lord knows that our hearts tend to wind down. Our hearts tend to forget. They tend to grow cold. We tend to forget that we are sinners in need of salvation. We tend to forget that we're in need of God's grace if we're to have hope in life and death. One of my professors in seminary, a very old godly man, used to say that the Christian life is a mixture of amnesia and deja vu. He, he would say, he would say I, I know I've forgotten this before, right? And so the Lord would give Israel a feast of unleavened bread as a perpetual reminder to their descendants, knowing that they would remember that they've forgotten this, right? He gave them a yearly reorientation. And brothers and sisters, the Lord has done the same for us as Christians, for those who have inherited this redemption. We no longer celebrate the Passover, that's true. That's because as Paul says again in 1 Corinthians 5, Christ is the Passover lamb. He's, he's fulfilled the Passover. There's no reason to celebrate the Passover any longer because the Passover was provisional. It was meant to point to something greater. That greater thing has happened. When Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples right before his death, that was the last one. The story of the Passover in Exodus is no longer God's foundational act of redemption. Instead, now, Paul says, we keep the feast by celebrating the Lord's Supper together. We come to the Lord's table in remembrance of him. We remember there his sacrifice. We remember his deliverance of us by his substitution. And so we see yet again the great importance that the Lord places on his people remembering. He made it fundamental for the Jews before Christ. And he made it foundational for his people after Christ as well. Right, the Lord couldn't be clearer. Remember. Again, life is routine. It's hard enough to keep your focus day to day, but in the Lord's Supper, we have a refuge. We have an opportunity to remember and refocus. And so, brothers and sisters, let's respond to God's salvation, to God's gospel word by coming to the table now. Let's respond by rejoicing in the truth that is on display for us in this memorial feast Let's come to the table like the Israelites feasted on that night in Egypt, taking shelter in the blood of the sacrifice, allowing the death of our substitute to be the reality that shapes our identity and controls the way we love God and one another. Let's pray before we celebrate.